We believe that true success in every domain of life and work begins with a vision and a plan. I'm Michael Counts. And I'm Sarah Ellis Conan, and we are the founders of A Plan Coaching. And you're listening to All You Need Is a Plan. A podcast that explores how we can get the most out of life and work in the midst of more and more complicated and challenging times. Each week, we'll bring you guests who represent success stories at companies and organizations of all shapes and sizes. As well as thought leaders at the forefront of business and the wellness economy. So the purpose of this podcast is to share and explore stories of personal and organizational achievement ranging from how a company can change its culture and transform into the next phase of its evolution and succeed in new ways, to how a filmmaker can have a vision for a new project and realize it despite all the complexities, challenges, and difficulties that stand in the way, to how two creative partners can build a business and become an award-winning architectural firm, and how a new mom can see a need and launch a small nonprofit that grows into one of the largest diaper banks in the U.S., and many more. Knowing that achievement is really an inside job, we'll look at how habits are formed and obstacles overcome how organizational systems are put together, and how goals are set and explained, how successful teams are structured and managed, how people are supported to bring their best, and how challenges to team and group dynamics are mitigated so that the toxicity that can sometimes exist in a culture doesn't rule the day. So in this podcast, all you need is a plan. We're going to explore how things get done, big and small, in companies and organizations of all shapes and sizes, and the role that coaching and other tools have in supporting the achievement of individual and organizational goals. With that in mind, let's get to it. I'm Michael Counts. And I'm Susanna Ludwig. And we are the hosts of All You Need is a Plan. And our guest today is Mahama Nyankamawu. And I'm so excited to have a conversation with you, Mahama. Your article, The Inclusion Conundrum, was fantastic and important. And it's just a privilege to know you. And, and the conversation around the topic of inclusion is critical always, but especially now. So welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Mahama, as Michael said, we're so happy to have you here today. Thanks so much for spending time with us. I'm curious a little bit about your own personal history before we jump into the details of your article. Why don't you tell us a bit about who you are, how you got where you are, and anything you want to share would be really helpful to our listeners. Thank you, Susanna and Michael. It's a privilege to be here. I'm really excited to be talking to both of you on a topic that's really important for me. So growing up, in an extended family of 41 kids, I had to learn the benefits of accepting other people and helping other people to understand and accept me. So I feel like my early life set me up for seeing the value and importance of inclusion. I wish I could tell you that I did everything right, <laughs> but the, the mistakes that I made just growing up kind of have defined a lot of who I've become over time. So when I worked as an engineer for 10 years, full-time before I became a DEI practitioner and executive coach with A-Plan, I realized, wow, I actually did learn more than I thought I'd, I learned as a kid. Because if I had a superpower, it would be bringing people together, helping them to identify and connect with who they are and connect with the power that they can tap into to actually be very productive and, and just have joy in their lives. And not just doing this for one person, but doing it for everybody on the team. So I feel like I thrive where I work with people who really have a big goal. And many of us at A-Plan have the same orientation and also helping them to overcome the types of unconscious biases or blind spots that they may have 
in order that we may all thrive and share in this beautiful thing we call humanity towards building uh, great things. So that's that's where I will stop that. I mean, I'm an engineer, obviously, I'm a coach, but I just think the joy in working with people is just so transcendent. I love that. One of the things that I loved uh, about your article, Mahama, was the, your personal journey. I mean, you talk about inclusion, you talk about your own experience with that, and you, you use this great metaphor, the elephant at the party, you know, and the giraffe not preparing appropriately, or am I getting it wrong? Is it the, the elephant not preparing for the giraffe? One of the two, the, the, yeah. they, they didn't prepare for the unique aspects of their guest. And I think that we often do that. I think that's unconscious bias and you, you, you the, the metaphor really helps explain it. I'd love to get into that a little bit and talk about, you know, your experience with inclusion or feeling excluded how and how that impacted you and and then how you've talked about it in, in the context of the article and what are some lessons that that our listeners could learn about, you know, cuz I feel like we all have experienced that. I mean, I could look back to many experiences in my life of feeling excluded in ways that were kind of systemic and they had a, an impact. And I'd just love to hear your perspective on your own experience and then what what else we might learn from that. That's a beautiful question, Michael. Thank you for that. In fact, in the article, I talk about my experience moving from the northern part of Ghana, which is relatively the poorest part of Ghana, to the southern part to attend Borden High School and how the people in that area, the people that I associated with most of the time, would say things about my people, my culture, my region. Oh, how come you are so different from your people? You are so cultured, you are so uh, smart. And for them, that was praising me, making me feel different and unique. However, it landed differently for me. I felt the pain of being labeled number one. And certainly my identity as somebody who came from Tamalid in the northern part was being trashed by people who barely knew me or my people, right? So that pain of exclusion was real for me. And over time, I've come to learn from the neuroscience of inclusion that the part of our brains, okay, the, the amygdala part of our brain that lights up when we are in physical pain is the same part of the brain that is lit up when we feel excluded. So no wonder it was such an uncomfortable experience for me. I actually literally sometimes felt like I was in physical pain. So I've come to value the importance of being included in myself and also knowing the pain of exclusion, doing my best to bring in other people in any environment I find myself in. Well, it's interesting that you mention feeling physical pain and feeling excluded. And, you know, a lot of what we work on in coaching is helping people see their own limitations and see the things that hold them back. And one of the things that I've really observed in my own life and observed in many of our clients is that fear is really like one of the most primary and fundamental obstacles that causes so much of the strife and friction that we, I think we experience in our communities and our culture and interpersonally. And I'm just reminded that the part of the, the brain that lights up the amygdala is also activated when we feel threatened and can cause a sense of fear. That's the fight or flight or freeze 
you know, the what's often referred to as the kind of reptile brain that kept us alive for the early part of human history and going back. It's been evolving for 650 million years. It kept us alive. We're the product of that fear stands, but it doesn't serve us in the same way today. And I'm just interested to, that what, what you're talking about is, is exclusion and, and physical pain, but how it also activates a sense of being threatened in a fundamental way. I agree with you, Michael. And it's so true because really when we shut down in that component of the amygdala, it's because we are not only experiencing fear, we're also experiencing uncertainty and doubt. And all of those things are involved in that flight, fight and freeze uh, response that we use as a defense mechanism, right? Really, we act out against other people when we feel hurt ourselves. So when I am afraid, I actually end up creating fear in someone else, right? And it's almost like a mirror reflection of who I am inside or how I'm feeling that I'm acting out towards somebody like that. So you're exactly right on that score. I was just going to pop in with a different question that's related. One of the lines I love the most about your article, Mahama, was the line where you wrote that it, it's not only important to invite people to the party, but to ask them to dance. And I felt like that was such a beautiful visual in terms of thinking about inclusion and thinking about how we might continue the conversation. I'd love to have you elaborate a bit more on that because it's just such a beautiful idea. Yeah. Thank you, Susanna. That's that's actually a very interesting question. When I hear dance, I just want to move, right? Because <laughs> like I'm all about dancing and moving. and Yeah. Uh, so dancing just triggers these happy chemicals that flow in me. But let's talk about that in the context of inclusion for a moment. And I actually want us to go a level deeper. So this is originally a concept popularized by Vernie Myers. She is the VP of inclusion at Netflix, where she describes inclusion as not just being asked to come to the party, but being invited to dance, right? Because yes, people can say, like in my case in Ghana, hey, let's go out and let's go have some food. And then when you go, then they sit by themselves and then they have you sit somewhere else. So that is exclusionary, right? It's, so, okay, it is definitely better to be asked to join than not to be asked, right? But, but beyond that, if you don't feel like you are part of the environment that the party is happening in, then you're still going to feel some feelings of exclusion. Not as much as if you weren't, you know, asked at all. But then there's even a level deeper than that. You go to the party, you are invited to dance, but what if you had a say in selecting the playlist of the music so that the music is not all someone else's music, right? Then we begin to get into things of equity, right? So you have a say in the type of music the DJ is playing, then you actually are getting deeper into being included and feel like you belong to this party. I know we do a lot of work at A-Plan with companies and you've done a lot of work with companies on to support them in, in being more inclusive and, and designing programs to be more inclusive. How, what is the cost to them? To, it, it can help create change is to understand how diversity it benefits a community, right? Like not not just it's the right thing to do. Of course it is, but also it it, it creates a more a more considered overall perspective. So, what are the benefits that you counsel the companies that you work with? What does it do within a community? What are how do communities that that foster inclusivity work better? I guess. Yeah, 
actually, this is the heart of the issue for a company, right? Because if I'm a senior executive of my company, I know that inclusion is a nice thing to have. Then it begins to look fuzzy. Does it really have a business case? Because the fact of the matter is that it is not easy to transform an existing company culture to one that is more inclusive. First of all, it takes time. Some people are going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful. So before you even embark on the journey, you want to know that there is some tangible outcomes, right? So let's talk about it for a moment. What is the business case for inclusion? So there's a study in the Harvard Business Review from 2019 that talks about the quantitative impacts of inclusion. So that study shows that 56% of job performance is higher in more inclusive companies than those who are not as inclusive. So there's a 56% increase in what job performance of employees. Now that makes sense from neuroscience perspective. As we're talking about the amygdala, when you are shut down because you feel excluded, your creativity and your innovation is actually lower. That's one data point. The other data point is that there is a 75% reduction in employees taking sick days in more inclusive companies than less inclusive companies. I think that's beautiful. Well, check this out. A lot of HR teams and companies are interested in attrition rates, right? There is a huge business case for that in terms of employee retention, in terms of more creativity in the company. And I'll give you one last thing. This same study shows that for a company that has 10,000 people as a baseline, in general, you can save up to $52 million a year for a 10,000-person company if you have a more inclusive culture. So I would say that these things and other reasons are a strong business case for why companies should endeavor to build an inclusive culture. Wow. One of the, the cases that we've historically made for the value of coaching is specifically around retention. And, and I think this is just one more facet because it's such a huge and expensive problem. Right. I mean, our, our research indicates that I mean, this is pretty commonly available, but there was a poll that Gallup did that revealed that the cost of replacing a single employee can range from 75% up to 200% on average of, of that employee's annual salary. So if you look at the bottom line cost of a company having really high attrition, it's massive. And that, I guess that's the $52 million you were referring to in a larger you know, company, like an Autodesk size company of 10,000 employees. It makes the business cases there. And of course, the case for it just being the right thing to do in the world of equity. I, I want to just circle back to sort of where we started at the beginning of this for a minute. I, I'd like to know more about how do you employ all of these principles in your coaching? Because Presumably, a lot of our listeners are going to be people who are maybe interested in working with A-Plan. I would just love to know more about what does this mean for you and your own coach? And when you're working with clients, how do you incorporate these principles? Yeah, thank you very much. So I'll start with individual clients and some of the group work that I've done. So I really believe in subtly embedding inclusive practices in everything that you do so you don't call it out that I'm trying to train you to be more inclusive because that kind of people get a little bit uh, defensive around that. What do you mean that I'm not inclusive, right? So the first thing is really to get curious about what the client really wants. But 
even deeper than that, a client comes and tells me, this is my goal. I'm really curious to see what is the goal behind the goal? Because really that is where you understand and accept the person where they are. So I think being a respectful coach includes understanding the thing below the thing. Like if the person has say a problem, that's, that's the presenting problem, but what is the deeper problem that the person has? If they have a goal, that's the presenting goal. What is the deeper goal that this person has, right? So you want to, in, in my opinion, I want to talk to the person at the deepest level that they can go where they are, because over time you can obviously get deeper. And that usually just opens up a door that says, wow, okay, this is someone who is really, for the first time, listening to me like I want to be listening listened to. Someone who is seeing me like I want to be seen. So I think part of inclusion in general is the ability to see someone as they are, not as they have been, but as they are and beyond that, what they can be. Because I like this analogy about coaching is helping someone to do already what they knew they could do, but we're not doing. So that is it from that perspective. And also just understanding where the person is coming from today. So where are they today? We have painted a beautiful picture of where they might want to go. Obviously, we can keep working on that, painting that tapestry, making it better. But where are they today, right? And helping them to see that the parts of themselves that they sometimes reject. So this is part of inclusion as well. Carl Jung talks about our shadow selves, the, the shadows that we have. So if you imagine a gold mine, before you can actually go get the gold, there's lots of scary things. There's lots of darkness around the gold, but it needs courage to mine this gold, right? So we have these parts of ourselves as individuals, our shadow sides that we don't want to go there because we are afraid of what we might discover there. But there's so much wisdom and so much value that is hiding in those corners. So part of being inclusive as, as, as a client who is being coached is to take the courage to dig deeper into those pl places and things that you don't want to get to. Because that power that you are not accessing is exactly what you need to get to that beautiful place that you've created for yourself. So that's from an individual perspective. And also from a group perspective, I can give you some work that I did with Samsung in 2019 about coming in and seeing what was it that was causing the high rate of turnover of some of the underrepresented employees, right? And just trying to understand how to build a more cohesive or inclusive group in order that they would actually feel like they were on the same page and it would reduce hopefully the level of attrition that was going on there. And some of the same individual principles work there. So what is it that we are trying to achieve? We're trying to build a more inclusive group. We are trying to reduce turnover. But where are we today? What is it that we are afraid of talking about? What are the things that are sometimes hiding in plain sight? And also to just acknowledge that it's going to take a while to get these things to change. So I believe in the small wins model of building inclusion. Like start with something small, test it, pilot it, work with people where they are and don't push them too far outside their comfort zone. Otherwise you would actually end up potentially harming a beautiful thing that you are building. It's great. I so appreciate that. 
Going back, uh, Muhammad, for a second to your article, one of the things that I loved uh, was the the description of the challenges that, and I think I have this right, that the elephant would experience on the stairs in the giraffe's house and how it's just not prepared in a way for them and vice versa. The giraffe going to the elephant's house, the, the ceilings might be too short for the, the giraffe to be able to move comfortably through the house. What are some practical ways that you've advised for companies to sort of create an environment that's more inclusive, that considers them, that, that is the kind of corporate version of inviting you to dance and pick the playlist? And how does coaching support those things? It's actually a very interesting concept to design processes and systems within an organization to make it more, to help them to become more inclusive. So from a coaching perspective, you know, the concept of powerful questions. So we go in and I go in as a consultant for the most part, and I try to understand what is it that their current state is. So obviously they have a challenge and they want it to be solved. And I say, okay, so let's expose everything to the light. This is what is going on. So maybe your challenge is that you don't have enough of a diverse set of employees. Okay, so that's, that's a challenge. Let's go and look at your hiring practices. What, what places are you going to find your talent? So as a coach, I am a very big proponent of bringing in coaching for the leadership team and for the employees in the company. Okay, One thing I would say is that when you do that, like we're currently doing that for, for Stripe, for example, you understand what the employees are struggling with, where they're doing well, and you understand the perspective of the managers as well. So bringing in a, a, an amazing group of coaches like A-Plan offers to uh, organizations is a beautiful way to be able to diagnose the challenges that the organization has and to be able to bridge the gap if one does indeed exist between the employees and the management. And Coaching can also provide a way of doing some type of organizational analysis, right? Organization-wide. So what are the things that are stopping the organization? What are they already doing well? In, in one part of the same organization, that could actually be used across different components of the organization. And that is one of the things that I see as powerful in coaching. Other things is putting together like a mentoring program. There are different types of mentoring that you could have. You could have a buddy system. You could have creative mentoring programs like reverse mentoring where employees actually get to coach their managers on different topics as well. That's a beautiful way to, to do that. You could look at the, and I've done this before, what is the performance evaluation process? Because usually a lot of employees, not just employees of color, complain that they don't have transparency on how people are evaluated, right? So how could you go into this performance evaluation process and make them more what inclusive? How could you build inclusive meetings so that people who are introverts, for example, don't feel like the more chatty people are running over them in, in a meeting, right? So it's almost like a nuts and bolts understanding of what they're doing, and how could you design processes that make it easier for them to, you don't even have to think about it because there are, there, are, there are three different ways that you can build inclusion in an organization. One of them is helping them to feel the need. So there are trainings that you could have on unconscious bias, on how to have difficult conversations. That's just getting the knowledge and helping them feel the need. 
but they still have to consciously participate. The other way is process design. How might you design the processes such that people who are naturally talented and leadership material do not have to go out of their way to be identified as potential leaders? There are organizational design principles that you could do that. Then the other thing is framing perceptions. Let me give you a simple example. If you created a survey instrument about employee engagement, for example, and then you start the questions with an identity-related question, you're going to get completely different results from if the identity question is somewhere at the back of your survey. This is all out of the principles of anchoring, right? So understanding how to design work-related communication and surveys that are what, inclusive based on research insights. So these are all things that you can put in place to help organizations be more uh, inclusive. So like I said, from helping them to see the need, from designing systems that they don't have to worry about, those systems just nudge them towards specific outcomes and framing perceptions through creative communication that would help the people in the organization move towards a greater uh, culture of inclusiveness. I'm reminded as you say that, Mahama, of of what we've experienced working with companies on, on, on many fronts and also what I think many individuals experience working with a coach, which is that change takes time, right? Change takes sustained effort. And I think sometimes the idea, and, and it's why I think you point to the value of coaching. I would just echo that for anyone considering coaching as an intervention. It's like, you know, how often is it that, that a workshop is provided, you know, over a couple of days and the expectation is that that's going to result in change when in fact, understanding the issue is sort of step one. And then the implementation of that really takes time and, and individual habits change slowly, organizational habits change slowly. And I think the value and power of coaching is to offer that sustained effort to facilitate change, to bring us back to our intention when we drift. Because, you know, a lot of habits are ingrained. A lot of habits are longstanding. A lot of habits are unconscious. And I think that's where I see coaching having a huge impact in many of the companies we serve and and in many of the individuals we serve. I think it's really the same thing both individually and organizationally. I completely agree with that. And we've seen a lot of amazing results, even from some of the post-coaching surveys that we've done with individuals and some of the leaders in these organizations. They're like, oh, I mean, we didn't even know that we had this challenge. And now, you know, I have a, a few clients that, Stripe, who just say, one of them came to me last week. He's like, I want to actually mentor some of the people in my team and just give me some tips as to how to mentor them. So just by being coached by us at A-Plan, he's actually also thinking about how can he coach other people. So we are paying it forward just by being in this work with them. And hopefully part of what these organizations get from it is how to, in the long term, also organically create coaches in in their teams. That's so awesome. I mean, we talk about it as a coaching culture, but that's such a great example of what a coaching culture looks like practically and what an impact that can have when everybody's sort of starting to point in a similar direction of intention and desire for change and improvement and growth of as a company, as a team. That's a wonderful and powerful thing. Is there anything else, Muhammad, that you think that would be valuable for our listeners to know? I feel like you're, you have so much wisdom to you. I'd be curious 
there's anything else you want to add? Yeah, I just want to say if there are any organizational leaders who are listening and people of influence that the work of inclusion is not just about people of color, actually. I may have similarities with a white Caucasian friend, more similarities than with another black person in some in some context, right? So we need to think about inclusion more inclusively, let's use that, uh, that, that, that word, that our life experiences, our backgrounds predispose us to certain things, some of them great, some of them not so great. So when we think about the work of inclusion, let's start with ourselves and let's look beyond color when we come to inclusion. And also let's know that it's going to be a little bit uncomfortable to step outside what we are used to. But I can assure you, as somebody who has been in so many different contexts, I've lived on four continents, so many countries, that it's beautiful to be able to taste kui from Peru, for example. I would never have had that if I hadn't lived in Peru. It's beautiful to step outside your comfort zone. So beyond your familiarity, there's a lot out there in the world that is powerful, that you, your life will be richer if you just lean into the discomfort that comes from stepping out. And also remember to have self-compassion because like Joshua Green talks in his book, Moral Tribes, evolutionarily we've been in this trained framework where we have an us and a them. We are very comfortable with our in-groups because of familiarities and commonalities. And we are not as comfortable with what they call out groups because historically, they were people who came to kill us, who came to take things from us. But there's so much abundance in the world now. There's really no practical reason for us to look at some people as the out group and some people as the in group. However, our brain and our minds have been in that way of seeing things for a long time. So it is natural to feel discomfort when you are around difference. That's just the way our system is set up. It doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. So let's start with self-compassion. Acknowledge that difference can be painful and it's not because we've done anything wrong. It's just our system is trying to warn us that, hey, you may be stepping into something that is uh, not what I've been trained to do. Then we can override that and, and welcome difference. That's all I would say. Beautiful. Beautiful. Mahama, that is such a great insight and such good. I mean, I know we don't advise at a plan as much as offer counsel, but man, that is a great and wonderful and important idea. And it's such a privilege to work with you. It's such a privilege to have this conversation with you. I so enjoyed your article. As I said at the beginning, it's not only great, but important. And I, I just look forward to supporting you in all that you do and what we get to do together with A-Plan Coaching and the companies we serve. And I hope, listeners, that you've gotten as much out of this conversation as I certainly have. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you, Michael and Susanna. And I, I, I love A-Plan. A-Plan just has been amazing in terms of the depth of work that A-Plan is doing with organizations and in different ways as well. So, hey, check out the website and maybe someday we'll get to work together. Thanks for joining us for All You Need is a Plan. If you'd like to learn more about what A-Plan Coaching can do for your team or organization, check out our website, aplancoaching.com connect with us on social media or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening.